and that I think that that's a lot of spiritual and sort of new age movements yeah. take things up here very much and very esoteric and etheric or very even scientific but mental and they don't relate it back to the earth and how to practically ground that awareness and those types of uh, insights that we have about the nature of things well how do you bring that to the bath because mm -hmm. everyone bathroom how do you bring it to your relationships how do you bring it to your day-to-day moment-to-moment existence that is in a large part i find uh missing Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of season three of Movement Matters. I'm your host, Colin Kurtz. It's been a few weeks. It's been a few weeks since I had a guest, and partly because a lot of people have been resistant to coming in person, so I, gotta, I needed to make sure I felt ready and comfortable and, and even kind of had the right desire to record remotely. Um, and I do, and we have, and that's what this first episode in a while is. It's a remote one. And we've been busy with Happy Grow Media, getting the sets finished, learning how to use the cameras. <sighs> Never seen a boomstick, but now I know what one does and how it works, and it's pretty fun. Soon enough, uh, well, actually, we've already started rehearsing and, and playing around, recording a bit of some of the shows, and soon enough... You'll get some teasers, and uh, one day, next year, undoubtedly, you will see what we've started working on this year. <clears throat> but before all of that, I'll introduce Mr. Joshua Duncan, who, well, that's what I, that's the name he had when I met him, we'll say. And he obviously still has that name, but he goes by Ram Krishnan Singh. And when I met him, in 2009, we go into this a bit in the episode, um, we were both on a very, very par parallel paths, um, <laughs> definitely exploring, definitely just letting the wind kind of guide us. And at this point, we're both uh, relatively young fathers, we're about the same age, I think he's a year older than me, and we're very much focused on our mission. And this episode is... It's meant to be about, and I, I do my part to keep it focused on that, um, or to keep us on track with that. It's uh, mostly about his mission, which I really respect and really am so grateful for. You're going to hear a lot about it. You'll hear me reference these seven modules a lot. It's in reference, or um, what I'm referring to is his whole... Um, you could say school of thought or education model called cultural detox. So the short little preface I'll give about that is essentially Ram is the main person I know who has explored um, the, ex the other options. <laughs> I know, well, I've explored them myself, but I know people like Ram who have explored much, much more thoroughly. 
I know people who literally live in teepees and have for decades and raise their children in that environment. Rom's a bit more like that. I'm a little more mainstream, you could say, in comparison to um, some of these people. But specifically, Rom lived in the Amazon for a long time, uh, on and off multiple times, uh, Peru in particular, I believe. And he is also, we don't get into this much, but he's the one of two people that really influenced my choice in 2010 to drink ayahuasca. And again, we don't get into that a lot, but when I met him, he was one of the few people that had experience with it, and it was a really, really critical aspect of his life. So again, you're going to hear all about this cultural detox and these seven modules uh, once we kind of do our little catch-up and <laughs> and get make sure that we're comfortable with our, our Zooming. Um, the other part of what I want to introduce is a more general tonal aspect, if you will, a, a flavor that I am aware I am bringing. And I'm in between recording episode seven with Paolo and this episode with Ram, I've definitely become clearer about what I primarily want to be conveying. <laughs> And a lot has happened between then and now. Um, of course, the election, of course, all of the effects that that has directly and indirectly on us. Um, just witnessed today another, I'm not going to lie about it, really unpleasant Trump, uh, I guess it's a rally, but when a bunch of trucks and cars just drive through your town beeping their horns uh, incessantly and sometimes playing beeping and holding on loudly to train horns it's not it's not nice there's nothing really pleasant or beautiful or welcome about it it's it's really almost completely unwelcome i don't think there's much about it that is welcome which gets to the the specific kind of tonal detail that i'm allowing myself to own and that is that we need agreements. I realize the whole, the foundation of even opening this business is essentially that, is rooted in that declaration that agreements wouldn't just be nice, but we need them. And what we call real wellness, when I introduced it to people um, sometime last year at one of our open houses, what I primarily was outlining was the fact that we're basing our approach and our entire vision for this business on easy agreements, agreements that are essential for all of us. They're, and I, I would call them objective. I would say that they are true, and hence we are willing to call it real wellness. But the, the key is agreements. And another specific thing that's happened between the last recording and this recording is I watched The Social Dilemma. And if you've watched it, you'll know, hopefully, that the primary thesis and the, the whole premise of the movie is to point out that if we don't arrive at a shared understanding or agreements, if we don't primarily live with agreements about what is real, then at best we're just going to be spinning our wheels and not moving forward, but more likely everything will fall apart. So what is it that would fall apart? Well, 
primarily, of course, people would say civilization or society or democracy, et cetera. But more troubling than that is even the capacity to connect. If we don't have a shared understanding or perspective or even interpretation, all of which is essentially a synonymous way of saying, if we don't have agreements, it is damn near impossible to connect on the most rudimentary levels. <clears throat> and if we can't connect, we can't, quote unquote, work together, or more perhaps excitingly, co-create. And you can't create you have to allow for something new in order to create. There's no creation without newness. The formula is really simple. Without agreements, can't create something new, which means we won't move forward. Newness and movement forward go hand in hand. So the, the simplest scenario is, we, is that we just don't move forward. But that's not really possible because life requires somehow for there to be a different, a change. And it's going to either be something that we catalyze and we have some agency in, or it'll be thrust upon us. I think the former's better, but we can't do it without foundational understandings or agreements about what is real. I guess for years I've been thinking that that's probably true, but I am basically <laughs> certain at this point. And I, I am very much aware that that affects my tone in most contexts and certainly in these podcasts and certainly in these conversations. Um, doesn't have to be a serious tone but I know that it could seem like one. And part of what's so good about this conversation with Ram is that he's most clear and consistent about, you could say, coming from a place that isn't so wordy or verbose or conceptual or heady, but heart-centered. And I am completely on the same page with him about that. The fact is we need both. And he and I essentially go around in our ways, different ways of uh, acknowledging that uh, until we, as you'll hear, run out of time because <laughs> um, he's in Santa Fe and eventually the, the world woke up and the trash was getting collected and his family needed him. So enjoy this little exploration. This was literally the first time that I really connected with my friend in years and i'm so glad i did and i'm so glad you got to you not only get to hear it but you have the potential to watch it which is something that will be happening more and more as happy grow media and specifically my um movement matters podcast grows and you see more um here's one last little ditty from our conversation that i want to highlight uh, you know what actually i'll save this for the outro yeah save that okay so without further <laughs> ramblings here is episode eight movement matters with i knew him as joshua when we met years ago but ram krishnan singh 
Enjoy. I think we're recording. And you're in Albuquerque? Am I going to get that wrong? Say that again. Santa Fe. Okay. That part cut out. Make sure the tech is working. <laughs> Good. And we don't know what kind of tree that is, but it is a nice crisp morning there. 742 in Santa Fe. Beautiful city. And you are sitting, are you sitting on the ground or at least on a blanket? I have a mat here. Wonderful. So welcome. I have not seen you in the flesh, let alone through any virtual means like this in years. How long has it been, you think? Eight or 10 or something like that. <laughs> wow. You haven't aged a bit. <laughs> I don't know. You can't see I have gray hair. I don't know if you can see it. A little bit. I have some yeah. wrinkles. I don't have any gray hair yet, and I should knock on something, but just some wrinkles. <laughs> yeah, we're a little older. I know we we met at, um, I assume you remember, the Raw Spirit Festival. Uh -huh. in Tooth. Do you remember that? I don't remember how we met. We met at a festival. Sean invited me to go down with him to it, um, my cousin, back in 2009. Yeah, I, I was just beginning to set sail in some very specific ways, allowing myself to really go on a pretty epic adventure for me at least. And that was an easy step. I went down to this festival and you and your mom were down there and we met and we got to talk in and obviously we realized we live relatively close. And that was, that was, that was like summer of 2009. Wow. I remember that now. Yeah. Was that the one that we shared a tent and yes, unintentionally, we didn't plan to, but the, uh, the crazy hippie Woodstock micro version of Woodstock experience that that was, uh, yeah, we did do that. We did share a tent. <laughs> you weren't in, I guess you were just going to find a place, huh? Cause I, so I was very free spirit at that point, not, not preparing much, just going with it. We both were. And is it fair to say that you are not as much now? I know I'm not. I'm definitely, I have a house, I have kids, I have a wife. It's definitely more of a thoughtful process to make any sort of movements. Yeah. You good with that? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's. <laughs> It's a learning curve and it's fun, you know, it's its own adventure and learning and certainly challenging and rewarding. Yeah. Agreed. And it, I, I know for me, it's so much better. I remember being the way I was then and before even thinking of uh, becoming a father and the main shift, of course, being a father and becoming a parent and choosing to be a uh, a good parent to the, to the best of your ability. Yeah. Everything's different. And of course it's better because I look back at that time and I was like, I, the lack of clarity. And actually you're the first person, every time I think of the word clarity, I think of you, which is a lot by the way, cause it's a very important word. You were the first one that ever introduced that word to me. I, I remember we were actually driving to Boston with Arnold. It was for some expo, I think. And you, you, we were at the gas station 
and we're, we drove up in Arnold's car. I was the driver. You were kind of just doing that free spirit thing coming along. And on the way up, we were, we were getting gas and you said so directly to me because you could tell that I, I had this like ambition about me, this, this drive to do something and you respected it and you appreciated it and you, you wanted me to know that you appreciated it, but you wanted to pr- make it clear that your main mission is clarity. Mm. You said, I remember it very, very well. I could probably figure out which gas station it even was on whatever interstate that was. Um, and then on the way back, we stopped at that stupid casino in Bethlehem and you tried to win like 10 million bucks or something. But uh, yeah, there was all kinds of fun, free-spirited stuff then, but I am so much glad, so much happier to be uh, grounded, if you will. Of course, you could use all kinds of words, but playfully grounded, which I think is the nature of where both of our lives are at this point. Playfully and all kinds of other adjectives, grounded. Yeah. You much, you much more literally at the moment, but. Yeah. <laughs> it's favorite place to to have these types of conversations on the ground. Yeah, like I was saying before, uh, I really love this office, but of course, if I could probably just figure out a way to blow the roof off or something, it would be better. But it's a great room. Yeah. Um, you, I always think of barefoot because... Uh, that's true. And the, I, I like the, the pun there. I hope there's a pun there because I, I showed you that polar bear. I do want to uh, have that too, but... Well, I remember one memory in particular, just it was snowing and maybe a foot or so of snow and yeah. and you like to be barefoot <laughs> even in the snow. So polar bear is quite a quite an adequate spirit animal or totem that you really resonate with and that you showed me of the picture right across from me right now. I do. This artist, um, I think her name is Laura Zombie, or at least that's her artistic name. It's incredible. Her her work is so beautiful. Um, well, I don't, I, I, in fact, it could be fun. You might appreciate it if I've never told you why I like polar bears. Have I ever told you that? What that totem oh. is about? No. no. All right, I'll do that. And it's fun to have it recorded here. But um, yeah, bare feet in general, of course. I, I'm basically barefoot now as well. And yeah, I luckily didn't give myself frostbite with all those explorations back then. <laughs> um, and I still still believe that that was one of the most important habits that I started in that time period. And I think we probably ran around that whole silly festival barefoot too. So, <laughs> All right. So yeah, polar bears. It was not long after that. It was during that whole time period. Um, Griffin was born. It was he was he was born January 2011. Near the end of that year, I was I was itching to to make a big change, and I didn't know what it was about. But I I was in therapy, and I was working with this therapist. We were living down in Floyd, Virginia, and the therapist was nearby, and we were discussing the fact that I I feel like I need to move back to where I'm from, or or something big like that because it had been years and she decided we'll do a hypnosis how about we we go through mm. a little hypnosis session mm. and i remember almost every detail as clearly as it was as if it was happening right now basically i'm lying down and we start the process and all of a sudden i'm a polar bear <laughs> and uh or at least i'm a polar bear and i'm also seeing a polar bear 
And this polar bear is sitting in a as industrial a warehousey kind of setting as you can imagine, but just blank, like completely empty, pure metallic, like adamantium looking kind of thing. If you can like just really just clean steel concrete floor just sitting there and it's encapsulated or trapped more accurately in this bubble and uh i can see through the bubble and the polar bear can tell that it's in this bubble and it's trapped and it's clawing ferociously to get out of the bubble and it exhausts itself it it exhausts itself to the point where it's just like i basically it just gives up and surrenders i'm in the bubble i'm trapped and all of a sudden a little a little door opens in the bubble and the polar bear, of course, like, oh, and crawls out on all fours and boom, no longer is it in that setting. It's just in any city, just walking down whatever avenue or, or whatever lane, whatever street, it's just walking there amongst the people as a polar bear, but nobody cares, nobody minds. And it's just walking along, doing its thing literally being a polar bear but around everyone anywhere anytime no matter what mm. and that was it and i the message was relatively straightforward just you got to be you <laughs> and that was uh uh yeah that was almost 10 years ago and i love it so since then i've felt very fond of polar bears uh, and I think there's a connection to the broader, obvious um, concerns that we we feel, and they're often a an animal that represents the the I would say the drama of the present moment, the unique drama of this moment. Obviously, referring to melting ice caps. Uh huh. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, well, that's the story of the polar bear. <laughs> yeah, polar bear. What comes to mind with polar bear for me is white. The polar bear is white. White is associated like with purity, with with this sort of immaculate beginner's mind sort of thing. I don't know. That's just where I go. And the bear is like a healer in many native traditions. The bear is, is associated with great healers, my bears is their totem so like is uh it's a it's a powerful totem to be able to be in the world but unstained by it and that and maintain that purity and be a healing presence i appreciate you adding that and i yeah yeah i've never looked deeply into some of the symbolism like like whiteness or what does the bear i just i've heard that sort of reflected back before. And it's obviously not a story that I've told too many people, but I, I, t- I tell people that I think will care and thank you. And that's an appropriate segue or connection to your journey because obviously you're in white and I assume that's on purpose, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Now that, that's directly related to the Kundalini tradition or your specific yeah. experience. It is, right? Well, good question, because it is related to the Kundalini yoga tradition, but I started, I was guided to wear white when I was living in the jungle, not connected to Kundalini yoga at all. 
So, Good, the jungle. I can't believe we forgot that that's obviously a topic. So you, you've lived in the jungle at least three times, right? Back and forth? I, yeah, different times. And the specifically longest, Peru. Peru, yeah. the Amazon. Yeah. For okay. the longest time. Say that again. For the longest time that I was there was nine months at a stretch, uh, uninterrupted. Got it. So is it worth bringing up ayahuasca or is that really kind of irrelevant for you at this point? Is that, yeah, I, is that anywhere that we go, I'm happy to be there. So sure. I, I mo as I said, I mostly want to get into your seven modules, but, um, you're, there's so much about you. That's fascinating, <laughs> of course. So um, of course, I met you as Joshua Duncan. You primarily go by Ram Krishnan Singh now. So there's that. And of course, that is that is also Kundalini, right? That's an aspect that, of that, you. Yeah, that came from the Kundalini Yoga tradition. Well, what would you like to say about your time in the jungle? Since I know we we only have so much time and the seven modules are really the key here. But what would you like to say about the jungle? Sure. Yeah, well, the jungle has been a key experience in being able to frame the rest of my life experience because the jungle to me is representative of that same type of purity which white is also a representative of a symbol of but the jungle to me you know there's no electricity there's no petroleum products there's no well it depends on how you're deciding to live but you can live in such a way and i did where you're going to the stream and the river, you're collecting your own water, you're cooking over an open fire from the wood, from the land. It's just a very simple way. And it's warm, so it feels very much like your boundaries dissolve because it's so warm, it's inviting, conducive to... Um, your, your body just feels really at ease. You know, there's not tension at all at ease, and you just feel like you're part of everything, or at least I did. So to me, the jungle experience offered what I always refer back to or I have deeply imprinted within me as the baseline of what natural living would be is if we weren't living in society and the culture as we know it with the square buildings and the, you know, electricity. <laughs> <laughs> There's literally no 90 degree angle in, in the natural world, would you concur yeah i absolutely everything is alive and growing in its own unique ways and and even the buildings that we were living in in the jungle although they were man-made and 90 degrees they were surrounded by screens so there weren't really walls it was more sort of like a permeable membrane that is also interconnected with the elements sometimes it would rain and we'd get rained on the rain would come through the the screens so very much different a different type of a existence and that is of course the the key that i know about your at least last however many years i'm not sure how long it's been you've been framing it as cultural detox but that is certainly the main i guess um context that i think about you is of course and i relate to you more importantly having never been to the amazon i still feel very clear about what you're saying um there's a distinction that you live with the awareness of, which is there's the normal culture, 
and there's an alternative way of living, <laughs> which sounds so simplistic yet not obvious mm-hmm. or it seems not obvious. So why do you, and of course this probably will get into the seven modules. Why do you think the normal experience is one that we need to detox from? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a question that I imagine yeah. makes a lot of sense and it gets right into the modules. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd say the simplest sort of approach to that to that question would be just looking at the way that society is right now and the majority of the people living within the society or a large percentage experience a degree of dissatisfaction or disease or sense of disconnection or you know physical mental emotional any of the levels of our experience a person could feel dis-ease, you know, not completely fulfilled, content. And again, the sense of disconnection is very prevalent. Disconnection with each other, disconnection with a bigger purpose, disconnection with nature, disconnection on whatever level. All of these things are basically like where I like to start. If a person is happy, then that's exactly why we want to go through a process to get them back to what I consider is our birthright. Health, happiness, wholeness, those things are our birthright. And the very facts that we are living in such fragmented and compartmentalized ways really disconnects us on all those levels and limits our ability to feel healthy, happy, and whole. Got it. The specifics matter so much, right? Because this is a message that could easily get lost in the the spiritual ether if you will i think like it's it's to be cavalier and or intentionally sort of blunt and, and blase about it it's just spirituality 101 but there's something very unique that i know you and i both know that's not obvious and the specificity is key and i is it fair to say for you that it i know i know i might be putting words in your mouth but um I definitely am trying to tactfully get into these seven modules. Do you think that it comes down to a thinking problem? Like, would you, is it fair to say that humans actually think about what it means to be human and why we're here and how to live healthily? Like, we think about it in a yeah. backwards way. We literally don't even have the programming set up correctly? That's, that's an awesome sort of question because I woke <laughs> up at midnight last night or this morning uh, going into a process where I was, I was sort of examining the cultural detox work from a different angle and seeing that really the work is about reorganizing our, I guess you could say our neurology or just reorganizing the way that things are to, to reconnect us with our own sense of wholeness and interconnectedness, autonomy, sovereignty, and interconnectedness. Those are the two aspects. And you asked about the thinking piece. I, I believe. Which, yeah. And neurology. I mean, I'm assuming yeah. you're connecting neurology and thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that the thinking, the thinking as we know it 
in our westernized culture is oftentimes super intellectual. And thinking in other cultures, you might ask a person where their mind is and they point or they go to their heart. Like, hmm. because we're such a disconnected and heady sort of society, we, we are totally creating all sorts of issues within ourselves just by our ways of thinking. We really want to ground our mind in our bodies and allow ourselves to have more of a whole experience of life where we're not just in our mind trying to solve problems, which is completely disconnected from reality. We're actually feeling from a very sort of intuitive and knowing sense. And then that experience is also translated into an emotional impulse, which also gives us a more of a cognitive experience as well, but it's all very unified. So I think that the thinking piece, Western society, you travel on a plane, you're in, in the jungle or something in South America where they're very heart-centered people, and you travel to the United States, and almost immediately I've experienced my awareness shift from the heart to like the, the area that <laughs> So. I get it. Yeah, I love it. And of course, well, maybe not of course, but a necessary, not pushback, but just piece to add is that the thinking isn't bad. The mind isn't bad. Of course, you're not suggesting that the mind is bad. It's a matter of becoming self-aware of, or becoming aware of yourself such that you recognize this yeah. is the patterning. This is the programming. This is the paradigm I want to choose. And you and I have this, yeah. there, there are these words that you and I know how to use that are not necessarily obviously defined or not. The definitions are not necessarily obvious to whoever we are speaking with. I experience that regularly where I, I know that the terms need to be made clear, hence clarity. The terms need to be defined. And yeah. There's so much, I don't relate to that as heady. I see that as just a necessary piece. And okay, yeah, clearly you do too. Um, yeah. But it, I th and I think it's valuable because of course, most people are wanting to understand conceptually. And I think your seven modules dig into what is the current concept. And I wanted to add what I perceive to be the the three primary pieces that when you arrive from the Amazon and you, you land in wherever, JFK or LA yeah. or, or probably even just pick a random place, uh, Nebraska, you could probably experience some sort of similarity no matter what, just because it's we think similarly as a country, as a collective, um, but seemingly also as a global species. And I think we can also extrapolate onto that scale of a species, knowing there are exceptions. But I, I see it in three ways. And, and I want to position this as a, a preface to you outlining the seven pieces. Mm. There you go. Pieces, not modules. Sir. <laughs> I perceive um, believing in absolute separation as one of the primary components. The key there being absolute separation. Um, desiring and usually unintentionally desiring some kind of ending, mm. like a, a completion. Mm -hmm. 
and a negating of the mystery of existence or negating the value of the unknown or the mystery. Sure. And in a sense, they're all kind of the same thing, which is yeah. um, absolutism. Yeah. But those, those three specifics are the three that I see most um, clearly thus far. Yeah. And, and in my work, which I know you, you wanted to hear a bit about what we're doing here, the short version is that I, I perceive the body as the primary um, and, and movement specifically, movement and body kind of go hand in hand to me as the main sort of doorway or window or entry point to becoming more self-aware. So I just relate to movement as the tool for self-awareness, which yeah. clearly is yoga in a nutshell too. Um, <laughs> somatics in a nutshell. Yeah. But I wanted to just put those three out there and see how you, how you feel about those three. I love it. What you just described is another, it's a, you know, it's a deeper aspect because, okay. So the ways of thinking, and, and again, this, whole process of re-engineering our ways of thinking like you had just said we have to redefine what we're talking about because we have concepts that in a sense are limited so what we need to do is connect our concepts more with an expansive formats and forms that help us to connect with something that's infinite and that's, that's an engineering process because mm. what happens, we have these concepts that we think are solid and real. And those concepts don't allow us to actually experience reality, which is infinite. You know, there is, there is a sense of knowing something, but we can never really know it. You know, there's only this relationship. There's only this experience of a relationship with, as you said, something that's very mysterious and infinite and unknowable. To a certain degree, we can know the personality of this infinite relationship that we're having with this infinite being, which we could call life or the mystery or whatever we want to call. But it's all about a relationship. And it's something that if we ever think that we really know it and we put it into a box and our way of thinking becomes limited, then we've in our, in our experience limited ourselves, limited our experience, limited anything that we can experience just by our ways of thinking. Which is Western Civ in a nutshell. <laughs> so, but we can, re, we can repattern things. We can we reconstruct it, deconstruct yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And take, the, take what's valuable from that that um, story from that exploration, from that history, from that experience. There's obviously it's good to be inquisitive and to, and to pursue and to explore uncharted territories, but can we do it without the neuroses, these, the pathologies? Yes, <laughs> we can. You just, you got, it's, it's, I love how you obviously look the part of somebody who would be mostly talking in more ethereal terms, but you always bring things back to a more just basic technological context. Like you would be, I think, uh, one who would quickly just say, just think about yourself as a computer. Just think in terms of programming. Just think in terms of your nervous system and your, um, your, the programming for your computer as the same thing. And you're just 
choosing to do it differently, choosing to change the program. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And all you're highlighting is the fact that the current paradigm or the primary program that we take on and that we're fed and not as if we're on in, um, you know, where there's a bit of complicity or we're a little complicit. We feed it and we are fed. We, we reinforce it. Just recognize that it could be better. <laughs> and it, you don't have to do it that way. Yeah, totally. And that's the first step is just recognizing that there's a choice there, that there's a possibility for something. tempting to hark back on education that I know we're both familiar with, which landmark. And I, I do recognize the value of that education. Um, to me, it's always come down to two problems. The, the one being that it's too much about the head, that, that primary, or that education is primary focused on the head, which is valuable because you need to, like you just said, that's the first step, but what are you going to ground in? And they don't, have that particular school of thought um, after a couple of months of, of exploring with them, I realized there's no respect for the bare feet. <laughs> like you can change your thinking all you want, but at the end of the day, you need to respect the fact that you're going to poop just like everything else. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I think that that's a lot of spiritual and sort of new age movements yeah. take things up here very much and very esoteric and etheric or very even scientific but mental and they don't relate it back to the earth and how to practically ground that awareness and those types of uh, insights that we have about the nature of things well how do you bring that to the bath because everyone bathroom how do you bring it to your relationships how do you bring it to your day-to-day moment-to-moment existence that is, in a large part, I find uh, missing. Yeah, my one of my good friends who's a uh, rabbi actually um, served as a mentor for me for a couple of years. He basically just says, we're all, we're just not potty trained as a species. <laughs> we're really yeah. just not potty trained. Yeah. And the problem with, like you just said, that new agey tendency, and obviously we're lumping a lot of things into that probably is you could end up just going into the same kind of loopage of absolutism or, or negating the value of the unknowable. It tends to happen without you even realizing it. Yeah. And I think, I think that one of the other of those three parts that you said about seeking an end that's the scariest one to me. Well, I think that that is built into most spiritual practices and most, yeah. and I'm saying this because I've been in them and I've done them and I understand them very much from the inside. And that's why I'm able to say many spiritual practices have an inherent drive to chase after something. When what I'm wanting to point to with cultural detox, that's just a terminology to refer to returning back to our original unconditioned design is that we're not trying to get somewhere. We're really unlearning the behaviors of trying to get something or somewhere to be able to be fully present. We're 
the goal would be to unlearn this goal-seeking tendency. Yes. So is it also fair to say, though, that it's both? You can have, and this is where it becomes almost beyond language or ineffable. It's just like you got to just live it. You can be engaged in the act of pursuing something without the pathology of thinking that it's an ending. Right? That's it. (laughs) You can be conscious of the pursuit of something as well as the fact that that's not any sort of ending. So in that respect, the the very idea of living in the moment has a more holistic element to it. Because I think the obvious issue of even the concept of being in the moment is it's the same stupid thing. It's the same ending drive. It's the same pathology. So as a living being, you can't be static. (laughs) That's not, that's not life, but you can be aware of the I, I try not to use the words like paradox because they're slightly overused, but the obvious, how would you say it? <laughs> well, the, I, bo- the both andness is what I tend to say. <laughs> so are you familiar with someone named Adi Ashanti? No, uh, not, not, I don't think so. No, I don't have any memory of that name. Yeah. So here's a meditation teacher who is extremely awake and I had the privilege to ask him a question because I had that very question. And my question was, is this whole idea of having a vision and working in a direction with a clear direction, is it counterproductive because it's, in a sense, taking us out of the present moment of just being completely present? And what he said was just what we're talking about now, his response. And this was also what I was contemplating. In a sense, the paradox is hold the vision as we live in the present moment and allow our process of moment-to-moment existence to be the unfolding of that vision. So in a sense, there's both. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, I host a men's group. I don't like to say that I lead it or anything because I don't. And we call it wide open why the wide de open um obvious uh, yeah clever right yeah <laughs> and the point of the why is obviously men but also um that unification of what we call the I, we could call it a lot of things but i think the word adventure is my preference the spirit of adventure with the solidity of foundation the solid, the solid mm. foundation and the spirit of adventure. Awesome. Do you like the song with or without you? Do you know it by you two? It's a relatively famous song. I don't think I know it. I'm not surprised. <laughs> it's a famous song, but, and you might appreciate it. I would encourage you to listen to it. It's, you know, the band you two, at least, right? You've heard of. Yeah, Bono and all that. It's our, It's one of the probably most famous songs ever written. And I read the, I'll make it short. I read the autobiography 
um, actually around that same time as the polar bear. So it all probably connected. And he explains the poetry, what the song means in the autobiography. And it's perfect. He basically realizes as a man, this, this is the short version, he needed to balance for himself the spirit of being an adventurous bohemian rock star and a father, a, a husband, a member of the collective. He just needed to do both. That's the whole song. And if you listen to it, you'll respect the, the, the point there because it doesn't come across like that, obviously. It's, a, it's really beautifully poetic. It's a beautiful song. I think you might appreciate it. That's awesome. Yeah. And that, yeah, that's, always, that's been a really helpful, actually a critical reminder for me because that's not what we're often taught. Hence the need to, if not detox, at least change the programming. So do you feel like unpacking your seven modules? And I'm getting, a, we're getting a lovely tour of your Santa Fe, uh, what is that called? Cobb? Or no, not Cobb, uh, Adobe? Yeah. That's yeah, beautiful. thanks. That's beautiful. It looks pretty big. It's about 1,300 square feet, and we have a nice size backyard. We're here in the city, so it's I'm pretty excited to have this backyard. And here's our fire pit. We just had a ceremony last night. I think awesome. you can see it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Very cool. Actually reminds me of when I was in Niger, some of the aesthetics there. Um, hey, I like Santa Fe. My brother lived in Santa Fe for a while. It's a nice town, city. <laughs> it's a, it's a, like a small city, I guess. Yeah. Say. Yeah. Albuquerque is more the city city, but, um, I'm wondering if we've contextualized the point. We, I think we have obviously enough. And do, do you feel like unpacking more of these seven modules as I've been hinting at? Sure. I think the sure. specificity is good. And if you're comfortable, even just giving the outline. Sure. Yeah. I'll go into as much as I, as I can. So we've got seven modules, which represent seven different layers of process. So cultural detox is born out of going to the jungle and working with the plants and unplugging from what we're familiar with and, going through a process of unloading all of the conditioning. So this process was born out of working with people in the jungle where a person is completely unplugged. They're out of a familiar context. They're going through a physical process, a psychological process, an emotional process. They're working with plants. They're going through all sorts of holistic treatments. It's, it's a total spectrum detoxification of everything that we thought that we knew to be able to be more and more and more present with life. And all of life is surrounding us and supporting us in that process. So how do we do that outside of the context of the jungle has been a process of discovering the different aspects that we go through. So we have seven different 40-day modules. Each of those modules has a different theme. The first theme is health, vibrant health. And we just finished a 40-day module on that one. And so the, the process that we go through, okay, the first is health. The second is authentic relationships. The third is essentially service. 
The fourth is the heart. The fifth is freedom. The sixth is the sacred science. And the seventh is life is ceremony. So nice. each of those, yeah. Health, each, authentic relationships, service, yeah. heart, freedom, sacred science, life is ceremony. Yeah. Yeah. So each of those, the, the whole process is about, take it back to why we do that. So when a child is born, it's very early process in development. The child is observing behaviors of the caregivers and the activity going around them. And patterns are formed within the child's psyche that form what's called the value system or the morality inherent within the child. It has to do with what the child has observed. In a large part, that just becomes a translation of society's values or society's morality. And the child operates, their executive functions of the brain get filtered through the morality. So before a person makes a decision, it very quickly and subtly goes through a measurement system to see if it's appropriate for the society. Is it something that's in alignment with society's values? So we have that all, all of us have that uh, programmed within ourselves. Before we make a decision and do something, it gets weighed against that, you know. So, so that's why sometimes it's difficult for some people to do things that are very uh, inappropriate for society because there's this value system. That's not right. Oh, I shouldn't do that. You know, there's, there's a lot of other things we can talk about in, in that level. But the whole seven module system has to do with each of those modules instilling a different core value within the individual. I think what you just described is the same thing you said before about how the primary or the first step is um, recognizing you have agency or choice, right? So if, did you just essentially describe the, the, the template for what choice is, recognizing that that's what you're born into, that we're all inevitably born into? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you, as you become ideally more mature and self-aware, you recognize you can make some choices or mostly you can choose. Yeah. Okay. And do you, do you think, <laughs> I, I'm only asking because I think it's somewhat, it would be on some people's minds and I know that it plays a part. I think it's a very, um, it fluctuates how relevant it is, but do you think genetics is at all important? I'd assume it's important somewhat, but mostly physiologically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Genetics, to a certain degree, play a role. But there's so much awareness right now about epigenetics and the changeability of our genetics. And, and that, that I, I say that environment is the most important factor. Yeah. Yeah, I just wrote about how yesterday genetics are still highly, um, there's still so much contextualization going on and, and subjectivity and, and the stories that are relevant to even our concepts of genetics are still very important. Um, yeah. I think unless it's a matter of like height, <laughs> height or superficial stuff, genetics is seemingly pretty irrelevant. 
Yeah. It's, there's a lot to it because there are at this point awarenesses. Science is discovering that, that, hmm, how would you say? It's like ancestral disposition can be transmitted through the genetics as well. And so that, but it's very challenging to say it might be an initial blueprint, but I truly believe that human beings are adaptable to their environments. And, and that's the biggest Seem, seems pretty proven. Yeah. And, and a person really evolves their way of being to be appropriate to whatever environment they're in. So the genetics play a role, maybe a starting point, but from, from there, every single environment and interaction has, has really taken more of a predominant position in describing the way that the person is manifest. Got it. Do you yeah. find many people struggle with this understanding that, that um, conditioning is paramount? Do, they, do many people struggle with that or is it pretty... Um, I think, relatable. Yeah. I think that it's pretty intuitive. Yeah. I think that when people just like hear it, it sort of resonates with what we can sort of see in a shadowy outline. If we can't see it very clearly, we, we have a sense of it in some way. And then most people can, can feel it. You know, they can feel how, when a truth, when there's something that's really connected with reality that is being transmitted. I feel that a person can feel that. So, yeah. I got a. Okay, so the word reality. Um, can we <laughs> can we take can we take a little walk down that lane real fast? <laughs> Check out that alleyway here. Yeah, let me try this out on you. Okay, the word reality seems to be the main word in my like vernacular right now. Um, I was excited about, I've been, I've been getting clearer for myself about what I want to make more evident to people in my work and in general over the last certainly year and certainly even months and really a couple of weeks. Um, and I was so, so moved by and excited by the, um, did you watch The Social Dilemma? Are you familiar Night. with it? Yeah. I, I think you'd appreciate it, even though it's, you know, it's, it's very pop culturally and it's very popish, but I think you'd appreciate it. I, I don't know if you even use Netflix, but <laughs> I think you'd appreciate it. I think specifically you'd appreciate it because the, the primary point is, and this is almost a direct quote, without a shared understanding of reality or truth or what's real, all synonymous in this context or synonymous, hopefully a period, um, we can't move forward. And that that's the primary point of the movie and the primary conclusion. And I've been attempting to figure out how to express that in my work and in, in my relationships and in general more and more. And I find it, the most consistent and fascinating piece is that you even back to defining terms, you have to even define a distinction between 
and again, we know this through Landmark, but it's, it's important regardless of Landmark, between what we're going to call reality, and we'll give it a capital R, and reality with a lowercase r, or even just your interpretation, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the very idea, and this is why I asked if people are receptive to it or if it's easy for people that you, you work with, the very idea of recognizing, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, okay, there is a, there is a shared reality, like universally, whatever you want to say, and there's my interpretation. The idea that there's both isn't even that obvious to people. It's not, I mean, it's a flip of the coin whether or not somebody's going to be conscious of that in my experience. And that to me is the base, that's the, that's the beginning. Like, first off, do we even agree that there is a thing that we all relate to? We relate to it differently, maybe, but it's still the same thing. Yeah. Do, do we know, do we understand that? And yeah. it's a flip of the coin whether people do or not, in my experience thus far. But I was extremely excited by that essential point of that movie because more than I guess anybody who's ever watched the Netflix premiere watched that. It was one of the most, it still is probably one of the most popular movies out right now. And, and that really is the point. Like we need that as a collective, as a species, as a whatever scale you want to say, we need that. It's a primary need. <laughs> yeah. Or we're just going to spin our wheels. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a lot in there. But. <laughs> well, the reality point is the key that you, you, ex- your experiences that people get the distinction that mm-hmm. they have okay it well in philosophical you know, terms it used to just be called objective truth or subjective truth whatever you want to call it it's all the same point sure yeah yeah <laughs> there's okay. a rabbit hole it's a rabbit hole <laughs> yeah so reality well, yeah what do you mean by rabbit hole because reality like you're saying there is a big R reality and then there's a small R reality because reality to every individual is going to be subjective to some degree in my belief system. It, it's, it's a subjective sort of thing. Everyone's reality is their, their refracted experience through their minds, you know, through their sense of perception, which is conditioned. Can okay? we call that an interpretation or is that not? Yeah. Okay. Inter- yeah. yeah. So it's an interpretation. And the ultimate reality sort of idea has to do with, okay, I'm just going to say at this moment, a perception that does not waver, it doesn't shake, it doesn't fight with reality, it doesn't chase after something different, and it doesn't uh, run away from whatever the experience is. But... Yeah, this is something that is, there are many layers to it and talking about it is, is challenging. Well, Alan. I think that we've built in a few fail-safes. You know, people are afraid. I, exp- I experience people's resistance to whether it's structure or order or rules or authority for good reasons and, and for, var- for different reasons, but they have a resistance to it sometimes. Um, 
I experienced this with the men in my life often, and especially in this men's group and, and just in general, there's a, there's a strange kind of resistance to too, to too much of all of those things. I just said like structure, order, rules, authority, et cetera. Even like the concept of hierarchy. And, and I, I generally get it. I think the primary safeguard or fail safe is just recognizing those can exist without the, that can still be there along with the mystery. It's mm-hmm. not a negation of sure. the unknowable. The unknowable sure. still allows for that foundation. I just don't know how at this point to think any other way, but I'm not even trying to think any other way at this uh, today. That is. <laughs> yeah. 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 So the reality that I want to point to when I talk about big R reality has to do with a reality that comes through perception, primarily through the heart, which sure. the heart as a physical organ is tuned into electromagnetic fields. It's tuned into every part of the body. It's an awareness. It has an awareness and an intelligence that transmits more information to the brain than the brain transmits to the heart. So in the science of cultural detox and what we go into and talk about how the heart is essentially informing the brain as physical organs, about reality moment to moment. And the brain as a physical organ is regulating the, the functions of the body to adapt to the moment, moment to moment experience as related from the heart. So the heart is primarily interpreting reality. However, we've become so associated with the brain's sort of adjust, adjusting um, functionality where the brain is literally changing hormonal balances, changing different functions, moment to moment, temperature. It's, it's, in, it's regulating all of these different functions to adapt to the moment. But we're associating more with this adaptation instead of this, this position where we're more connected with everything. And the heart is a center of connection. It's a center of feeling that gives us a direct experience through feeling sense. You know, we don't interpret those feelings when it's just the heart's perception. So that's the type of reality that I'm, I'm pointing towards is just this, this perception of feeling connected with what's inside of ourselves, with outside of ourselves in a, in a, yeah, I'll just leave it there. (laughs) I think that makes, yeah, I think that's a good way to frame it and connection is the primary point that i'm hearing and and you can say feeling you can say experiencing you can say understanding whatever yeah Yeah, connection yeah yeah and oh you got your little symbol again there you get (laughs) i'm looking at the list because i wrote it down the health authentic relationship service heart freedom sacred science life is ceremony and heart is obviously the middle one there and um, I know we only have a little bit more time. What you, I know heart and sacred science probably go hand in hand with everything you just said. Freedom's in the middle there. So 
in a way, I'm, all right, so I want to know what you think about freedom in general, but I'll, I'll give you this um, preface. I get, in, a, in a sense, part of what I was suggesting about the need for a shared reality or shared understanding, I mean, or interpretation of reality is, is related to what I perceive as a kind of the problem with our concept of freedom. And I think what I perceive with respect to freedom is that we think of it, especially in this country, as primarily we think of it as the ability to just believe whatever the hell you want. I'm guessing that's not what you mean by freedom. And would you agree that that, that is a, an ass a fair assessment of what we see in this country? Yeah, I, I would say believe whatever we want, do whatever we want, when we want to do it. <laughs> but primarily, yeah, believing for sure, at least. If you become more self-aware, you'll recognize that it's rooted in the belief that you can or should be able to think whatever you want, believe whatever you want, do whatever you want, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, sure. I don't think that's freedom. I think that's chaos, if you have to give it a label. I think that's a recipe for chaos. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> so the type of freedom, so yeah, as you're describing, that type of a freedom, I would say, has to do with, yeah, behavior in a way that could be chaotic because it all has to do with our own interpretation of reality and then acting in, in accordance with that. But everyone on different pages of what reality is, so it can create all sorts of disorder, confusion, that sort of thing. And I think our society sort of falls into that uh, experience that so many different directions and motivations and behaviors in, in complete congruence with what every individual thinks and believes However, so many different types of, of uh, belief systems and, and conditioning systems that creates a sense of a chaos and disorder and, and confusion. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just the way that I think that things are in large part, and that's fine. And the type of freedom that I'm talking about here, and that we go into, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I'm not going to interrupt you. Just footnoting, there's nothing wrong with that. Let's... Let's footnote yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whatever. That's that, yeah. <laughs> that's how it is. That's how it is. So we can't we can't we can't judge that or fight that. Or some people might want to, and I mean that's fine. That's freedom too. However, from my standpoint, where I want to go to with this idea and this concept of freedom is with a solid foundation of the previous form uh, modules of the vibrant health, the appropriate relationship with life itself and with oneself, the attitude of service embodied in the world and a, a center of our heart established firmly. Then we have the ability to be free. Freedom to me means the ability to take what this moment is offering and have infinite creative potential from there doesn't mean that we're trying to change and destroy or do anything against what is. It more is like, okay, from this moment of what is, how do we enhance, beautify, harmonize, 
through pure creative expression, through pure expression of a creative force that is our inherent nature. And I, I believe that our nature, if you could say essence or soul or anything like that, the closest thing that we can put into concepts, I would say, would be infinite creative potential. That's unbound, unconditioned, and pure in this moment. That's what I would, I would say. Yeah. I know that we both read The Ringing Cedars way back when, and you just reminded me of that, and it's, it's true. Um, in fact, I literally said to somebody yesterday that the, if there's a, like an equation to the, the, the movement coaching that I um, do with people and the embodying process, if there's a sort of intended equative um, benchmark. It's, are you more creative? Mm, yeah. Creativity yeah. is the point. Yeah. Do you, have, do you have a sense of how to just let yourself be yourself and express yourself and be creative moment to moment to moment? So yeah. I get it, man. I get it. Um, I get it because obviously it's, we're speaking the same language. Clearly I, I think about the, the parameters of how can we, how can, I mean, it's, it's the same, the same focus with maybe just a different, um, starting point like i i'm definitely curious about the potential for mass understanding and like the a large understanding to to take place yeah i guess education is the only way yeah. the only intelligent and safe and, and and um healthy way i just wonder without specifying a it's the same thing you're doing with these seven modules you're you're giving a solid foundation and structure without doing that um which of course is presenting things in a conceptual fashion to begin with can you do it any other way and i guess i guess i answered my own question maybe not and that's fine that's good um I guess I didn't even have a question in the end there. <laughs> I would say, I would say to that also, I want to add one piece is the, con the con conceptual piece and the education piece. I would say, and in my approach, I like to say that that's part of it. And I, I think that you would agree with this also, that you've got the concept, which is the, I call it a top down approach. It's called a top-down approach. When you go from the conceptual and you try to embody from the concept, then you've got the bottom-up approach, mm -hmm. which is the actual experience that starts to change the chemistry of the body, that changes the way that the neurons function and fire and configure. And that comes through the bottom-up approach, which is the actual experience. So I, I like to say both of them together are essential or else you won't get full change. You'll get the concept, of but you won't necessarily have the embodiment. 
Or if you have the embodiment, but you don't have the right concept, you will go back to the old concepts and you will essentially go back to the old again. So you need both of those pieces. Exactly. hundred percent. That's what I call somatic education. I think it is what, you know, in pe- people who pay attention to, or think in terms of like industries or, or, uh, um, yeah, categories. It's somatic education, top down and bottom up simultaneously, aka yeah. embodying. Yeah, un- embody it. <laughs> and that was again, that was always my issue with that one school of thought that we both explored. And it's my issue with anything like anytime somebody tries to contextualize me as a just about the physical. It's like, okay, mm, let's go further. Let's let me. Give me a moment. <laughs> and of course, I, I just wrote about this yesterday too. The, I, I guess I know, and you're, you're operating with the same knowledge that if you truly want to efficiently, the most efficient process is both. It, integrate changing a, what I would call movement pattern or the, the experiential part and the concept at the same time. Why not do it yeah. together? It's better together. Yeah. It's the most efficient yep. option. It is. It is. Yeah. And if you really want to change, you want to create change, you, you need that. And the more dynamic the movement, the more outside of your comfort zone or you know, what's normal, the more you're going to be able to create the more flexible, you're going to be able to create more dynamic change. The more dynamic the movement, the more dynamic the change cycle emotionally. A major, major focus over the last probably 15 years has been functional stuff in terms of movement. Like, of course, you could do all kinds of things. You could get really flexible. You could become... Uh, you could just get really good at running around barefoot or, or focus on being able to move naturally and which could be climbing trees and walking barefoot and, and mm-hmm. focusing primarily on being outside. You could be a whirling dervish and just spin yourself into oblivion. But I really appreciate where function has gone and, and I don't want to sound like I'm... Um, a proponent of just that, but I appreciate what I, what I see as an integration of that capacity to explore and play and be adventurous with a clear foundation. And I think a good, I have experienced even just this year, how that's transformed my own sense of self and capacity to do and be me dramatically more than any other point in my life without a doubt Um, and i don't think it has to be understood as function but i think having an understanding of what a human i'm not a polar bear i'm a human (laughs) of what a human is i don't want to say meant to do or meant to be capable of but Maybe there's a different way to say it, but having some specific kind of understanding about the fact that you're human and that means certain things mm-hmm. really does matter to me. Yeah. Okay. What you just said. I know you got to go. 
<laughs> I consider that to be the the whole key of what cultural detox is about. And I Ooh, think which part? Say it again. Having a, a structural foundation for what it means to be human on all levels is the ideal of what we're doing with the four the seven modules is all of those seven pieces are are layers of what it means to be human and we're establishing a core value through an education and through an experience and embodied of each of those values and the idea is 40 days is what it takes to create psycho emotional physiological change in the yogic perspective it takes 40 days so we got 40 day modules establishing those values rooting them in the physical mental structure and over the course of those seven modules it reconfigures what we have been programmed to believe we are with more of what our potential is as a foundation which is sovereignty which includes self-responsibility and autonomy and sense of uh heart-centered morality sort of thing um and interconnectedness with all of life and that's what the foundation of those seven modules delivers to the individual and helps them again to to detox from what they've been programmed with what we are as human beings we might want to leave it there what do you think i know you got to get going <laughs> sure <laughs> here's a playful yeah. place to end I, I think I told you that the last workshop we had here um, back in February before we needed to, or we chose to um, be responsible, and maybe it'll be the last workshop we ever have here, who knows, was with um, Mahan Rishi here in Yardley. I think I told you that, right? Yeah. And one of the main things that he and I were uh, connecting on was the fact that we both, back to that obvious polar bear piece, love the cold water. Yeah. So have you gotten, have you been doing your cold showers? Have you, are you? Yeah. For, for, I don't know how many years it's doing. Uh, did you do it yet today? I did. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I had a break for a period of time because I had a back situation and I needed hot water and mm. heat to help that pro process and acupuncture and all sorts of things. So starting to go back to the, the cold again but for many years certainly cold showers have been a staple of every morning and evening too i do both two showers yeah super ditto yeah sometimes i think that alone would would change would cause so much shift for people just committing to that one thing sometimes i think if you had to pick one thing it really would be a great start there's so much that goes into that. <laughs> when I was in the jungle, I had this awareness that the water, the nature of water is cooling, cooling, soothing, calming. In a sense, like fire raises, uplifts, you know, the energy of the fire is up. The water is flows down, you know, water from gravity just moves down and if you go to the river or the lake or stream it's always cool you know unless you're at a hot spring but so the nature of water itself is to cool things down to calm things down it works tremendously well for the nervous system cold showers cold water just calms down all of the uh static that comes from the electromagnetic fields that we're bathed in 
constantly. Yeah. Yeah, I get the visual. I like it. I also find it, it, it is profoundly invigorating and, and energizing and clarifying. Sure. Um, yeah. Definitely. It's part of my morning just wake up routine. So at night, I, yeah, I mean, I, water's clearly cleansing, but uh, I don't always get calm. I get clear, which is relevant for me to, to be calm. I need to be clear to be calm, but. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I dig it. I like it. <laughs> yeah. I think you got to go, right? Probably. Seems about that time. It's about nine for you. It's almost 11 here. Okay. Okay. Do you need to go? I imagine so. My wife yeah. is probably could use some more support right now. Sounds like <laughs> the world is waking up over there anyway. <laughs> yeah well should we wrap it up you feel sure. good with that sure yeah and anytime i'm happy to chat more it's been fun i enjoy it it is fun it's clarifying um i think we could do it again this i i had such resistance to doing any remotely but this worked yeah. fine this is good oh good i i think i just was not sure I wanted to figure it out, but it's yeah. Cool. Um, okay. Yeah. The trash is getting collected. <laughs> All right. Um, I will, well, I know you, you don't have much reason to come back this way soon. Your mom's moving out there too, right? Moving in just about a month. Yeah. All right. Well, if you're ever out this way, Absolutely. We'll take a cold dip. There's a good spot nearby, yep. but cool. For now, uh, it's good to have good to have this connection. I'm glad we've reconnected, and it's always a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. It was a lot of fun. Hope that we connect again soon. Let's 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 let's. Cool. All right. Enjoy your day, my friend. You too. And I want to hear about your center. So let's connect again. Oh, right. Okay. Let's do that. <laughs> I'll tell you more. Awesome. All right. I'm going to go support the wife. Enjoy. Bye. Thanks. And there it is. What a guy. I am so lucky to know these men. They are extraordinary. And uh, I hope you are glad you know them as well. This guest and the next guest are, they really, they have a lot of similarities in my opinion. Um, they brought out a lot of similar, similar feelings in me. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful to know so many extraordinary men. That being said, there are at least two. Ari, um, Ari was the only female guest in the first seven episodes of season three. There are at least two coming up soon. Uh, Alex Tonegas, my good friend from the Feldenkrais world, and Sarah Romanos. But before that, let's see. What, a, what I wanted to highlight about the episode you just heard was, I wrote it down the way that Ram Krishnan said it, um, so I'm just repeating here. The point of what his work is really about, the basic 
the gist of it that you need to understand is that the goal is to have a structural foundation for what it means to be human on all levels. We are ambitious men, let's say that. <laughs> We're prone to our, uh, our unifying understandings, if you will. Um, and I love it. I couldn't agree more. And again, that outline that he puts forth is the health, authentic relationships, service, heart, freedom, sacred science, and life as or is ceremony. Um, that freedom piece is great. He as, he, as you just heard him say, and I just want to repeat it, take what this moment is offering and have infinite creative potential. Be aware of infinite creative potential. And as I, I say so often with clients, creativity, the ability to feel able to express yourself and to be creative is the goal, is the point. And there is a foundation for how to, how to do that. Ideally, it is with, if it's going to be life-serving, you have to have a certain understanding of your relationship with yourself and others in life. And it's possible. I have a lot of people say to me sometimes, like, you're, you're an ambitious little guy, that's for sure. And I guess I just don't see any point in not, I don't see how to not be focused on this possibility. Um, the alternative to me is some, is too cynical or it's borderline just giving up. We need a new foundation for what we agree on and the work that Mr. Mr. Ram Krishnan Singh is doing is part of that foundation without a doubt. So thank you all for listening. Thank you, Ram. I will see you again soon, I am sure, if not just through the screens, and you'll all be hearing again a lot of this stuff in the next episode with Mr. Joe Wallace, who hopefully some of you know, and if you don't, uh, you'll get the pleasure of hearing about him soon and hopefully meeting him if you're local, hopefully meeting him when you're ready. All right, I'm done. Thank you.